text for uh, the message this morning is 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12. Now, a big theme of those verses is the fact that our good works as Christians should so uh, be displayed in the world that those who are lost are drawn to Jesus Christ in part because of our good works. And so we're going to see that theme in some other scriptures as well. So Moira will come and read for us the, the text of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Um, after that, Kathy will come and read for us from Matthew five fourteen to 16, where Jesus himself exhorts us to let our good works shine before others so that others can see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Uh, then Don will come and read for us from John 3, uh, 19 to 21. And these verses highlight for us how the, the, the good works that we do, the works of righteousness, are very different than the works of darkness and how those things can sometimes clash. And indeed, that is brought out for us in 1 Peter 2, verse 12 as well. So it's drawing on another theme of these good works shining forth before the world. And then we're going to return to 1 Peter. Uh, we'll read 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 18. Ryan will read that for us. And this tells us how words should also accompany our deeds as we go out into the world, as the lost are seeing our good works. Um, 1 Peter 3, 13 to 18 reminds us that we must also be ready to speak as others see those good works that we do. Um, so... With that, uh, Moira, if you want to come up and begin our reading uh, from 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Matthew five fourteen to 16 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Who is in heaven? John three nineteen to twenty one. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light, and don't come to the light, for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
The title of this sermon series, I know we don't uh, publicize the, the title a lot, um, but we did put some thought into the title of the sermon series, and the title of this whole series is Strangers and Aliens, Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. Strangers and Aliens, Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. I thought that was a good summarizing statement for looking at uh, the letter of First Peter. First Peter uses these words, strangers and aliens, multiple times. In his gospel, he leads it off in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and then again we see in our verses this morning, First Peter 2, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, right? So part of the overall message of First Peter is just that. We're strangers, we're aliens, we're not at home on the earth. We're only at home in heaven with the Lord where he is. And yet, Peter, of course, doesn't simply mean to tell us that we're strangers and aliens, as if that really had any benefit in and of itself. Uh, He gives us, again in our series title, what we're calling Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. Gospel Vision for the Difficult Journey Home. In other words, what Peter is saying is that if it's true that we're strangers and aliens, and of course it is true that we're strangers and aliens, then that means that we are going to have a difficult journey through this life, okay? The Christian life is going to be a hard life. It is going to be a challenging life. Indeed, 1 Peter, probably more than any other New Testament book, just makes clear, just takes as a presumption that suffering is going to be the Christian's way of life because we're strangers and aliens, because we're exiles, right? We don't belong here. We're not at home here. And when the world sees us, They recognize that we're strange people. They recognize that we don't belong here, that we're a different kind of people. And a lot of times they don't like it, right? And so they might have bad things to say about us. They might be rude to us. They might even persecute us in the New Testament time, kill us. You know, there's many things that could go wrong. But we know that as believers, we are going to have a difficult journey home. And so the question is, how are we going to make it through, right? If, if we want to trust in Jesus Christ, and if we know that's going to make us strangers and exiles, and if we know we're going to have a, a difficult journey home, why go through with it, right? <laughs> What's going to keep us going forward? And in the letter of 1 Peter, that's what in the series title we're calling Gospel Vision, okay? That's what Peter gives us over and over again to these people that he's writing to that are experiencing all the suffering that this world brings, he gives them gospel vision. And gospel vision can go a number of different ways. Gospel vision can be like the very first song that we sang, like, remember that this world doesn't last forever, you're almost home, right? That's gospel vision, remembering that, yeah, this isn't going to last forever, we're almost there. Another kind of gospel vision that Peter gives is to say, remember that Jesus shed his precious blood for you. And so even when you're prone to give up, you're prone to go astray, you say, oh no, that's right. Jesus paid his precious blood for me, so I want to stay on the path. Gospel vision could be that we have joy that is exceedingly great and filled with glory because we know the Lord. That's gospel vision because that's what Jesus gives us in the gospel. So Peter tells us that. So again, when life is hard... We can look to these different pieces of gospel vision. We can say, okay, yeah, I can keep going. I think I can do this because of this great hope that I have in the gospel. And so what I want to do this morning, especially as we look at these verses of 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, is I want to see how these verses 
in a sense, are, are the, the crux on which the whole book turns. Peter has started in one place, and he's about to shift to another place, and, and these verses are this crux that I think really helps us to see what Peter's doing. It helps us to see both how we're strangers and aliens, how we have a difficult journey, and how he's giving us gospel vision to get there. And so in order to understand these verses, I think the best way to do that is going to be to do more of an overview of the letter of 1 Peter, and so you can see how verses 11 and 12 fit into this overall message of 1 Peter. I think that approaching these verses in this way is going to be really helpful, because I know that as I read these verses just in isolation from the rest of the the book, it's easy for these verses to seem kind of like white noise, right? To seem like something that I've heard a hundred times, especially verse 11. You know, I I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, right? It would be easy if you're just reading that verse in isolation to think that what Peter's doing here is basically just calling me to be a good person, right? He wants me to get my act together morally, to, to abstain from these passions of the flesh, right? But what I hope will happen as we look at these verses in the overall context of 1 Peter, what, what Peter's doing in this whole letter overall, I hope we'll be able to see with fresh eyes just how significant these commands are and where Peter really wants to go with these commands, right? That it, it's not commands that are just limited to us in our own private moral effort, but rather, it's filled with this gospel vision. It's filled with what Peter sees that God is doing in the world. So, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to start at the very beginning of 1 Peter. We're going to see what comes up before 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. And then we're going to look a little bit at what comes after. And then we'll see how these verses really are a hinge that helps us to have this gospel vision. That helps us to see the suffering that Peter is saying will certainly come to us. And so, let's go there now. One of the main themes of 1 Peter we see right off the bat, if you want to turn to 1 Peter 1.1, is again this theme that we are strangers and exiles. But why are we strangers and exiles, right? That's not common sense. What is it that makes us strangers and exiles? Well, Peter gives us the answer more or less in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So notice how these verses tell us two things that happen when we become Christians. One thing that happens when we become Christians is that we are born again. Okay, that's verse 3. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And what's the significance of being born again? Well, significant in every way, but for the purpose of understanding strangers and exiles or strangers and aliens, it's important because when you're born again, that means you have a new father, right? When, when, when you're born again, when you're born, you're put into a family. When you're born again, you're put into a new family. In particular, what family are you born into when you are born again? Well, God himself becomes your father. So when you pray, we pray, God, my father. And we treat God as if he is our father because he truly has become our father by causing us to be born again. 
And so we're born again. We have a new father, but that's not the only thing that happens. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we get a new father, a new family, but we also get a new inheritance. But notice, it's not a worldly inheritance, right? It's not like God is just in another country and he has an inheritance for us there and someday we'll go there and we'll get it. No, God is indeed in another place. He's in another country, but that place is called heaven, right? It's not some physical location on earth. I do think there's a physical location called heaven, but I don't know exactly where it is right now, but there is an inheritance there. And because we're born into God's family, because God becomes our father, we also get this inheritance that God has prepared for us. And so what does that mean for us as believers? Well, it means if we have a father who is not of this world and we have an inheritance that is not of this world, then guess what? We don't belong here anymore, right? That, that's what makes us strangers and exiles, is being born again. That's what makes us outcasts. That's what makes us different than the rest of the world. And so this reality of the new birth, in this reality of the new birth, Peter is telling us that you are becoming strangers and exiles by virtue of being born again to this living hope, by virtue of getting this inheritance that is in another land. Okay? But how did that happen? How how did it happen that we got to be born again to this living hope? Well, that comes through the gospel. So go down a little bit later in 1 Peter 1. Look at 1 Peter 1, uh, starting uh, starting in verse 10, going down to verse 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, so this salvation, right, that's the new birth. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, verse 12, that idea that of the good news being preached to you. This is how we became born again. The good news was preached to us. And what is the good news? Well, Peter gives us a little hint of what he means by the good news there in verse 11. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the good news, the gospel, involves something about the message of Jesus Christ coming to earth and suffering and receiving glory. And so as this good news was preached to us, God gave us a mind, gave us a heart to actually believe this good news. And then we became born again. And in that way, we became exiles. Now Peter actually tells us a little more about this good news. If you were to go down to chapter 3. Sorry, see if I can find my place here. Probably. 3.18. Yes, thank you. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and then he goes on from there. But notice it says Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus Christ came, he suffered the suffering that we ourselves deserved, right? We deserve suffering because we had sinned against a holy God. But he rose again to newness of life, and then he lives forever and gives us this glorious inheritance. And so by trusting in Jesus Christ, we become strangers and exiles. We get this new family by believing in the gospel. Okay, so moving on from there. Let me try to actually find my place in my manuscript. Sorry, I've been preaching without a manuscript for a while, and this week I wrote a manuscript, so now I find myself all confused uh, trying to work through my manuscript. Um, So give me just a moment here. My pages are all out of order. You know what? I think I'm going to stumble over my manuscript multiple times. So I'm just going to do the outline. Uh, if you'll... Uh, Uh, bear with me. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you for the encouragement. Okay, the great result of this great salvation that we have won. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 8. So we're still leading up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 1 verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, so this is the great hope that we have. Through believing in Jesus Christ, through coming to faith in him, we get joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Right? This is the most basic thing that makes all this suffering worthwhile, is the fact that we get to come to know God, and God isn't just you know, a scary father being in the sky, right? No, he's the one that made us. We are the ones who are formed in his image. And so in some sense, when we come to God, we're coming to the very one that our souls are made for. We're coming to what we were created for. And so in this way, we get this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's more joy in coming to God as our father that we only get through the gospel. There's more joy in that than there is in all the treasures of the world. But again, what this means is that we are going to encounter suffering because we become this people of another world. And this is such a crucial theme of First Peter, that suffering is simply normal for Christians. Suffering is normal for Christians. Now, of course, Peter was written to people in a very different context than we are in today, Right? Peter was written to people who were living in a pagan culture, and the the pagan culture that they were living in was very different than ours. It's, It's a culture wherein anyone who pursued Christian virtues like humility or love or compassion or forgiveness, any of those things, they would have stood out like a sore thumb. Because the pagan world, they didn't believe in love or compassion or mercy or forgiveness, right? They believed in Zeus, right? And power 
and authority. And if someone treated you wrong, you got back at them twice as hard. That was the right thing to do. And so for these Christians to come along and have this ethic of humbleness and forgiveness and all these things, it would have just been bizarre to this pagan world. And so when this pagan world saw it, they indeed inflicted a lot of pain upon Christians. However, it's important for us to see, I think, that our suffering is not only a result, our suffering as Christians is not only a result of this difference between the the pagan world and the Christian faith. I think that Peter, if he were standing here today, would tell us that even today, we as Christians need to expect suffering. So we can be very thankful to God that the whole Western world in general has moved toward this Christian ethic, right? The whole Western world now believes in things like human rights and um, and peace and, you know, these things that were at one time only Christian ideals have become ideals of the broader culture. And so we can be very thankful for that. And yet, even in the face of that, we should expect to find persecution as Christians if we are living faithfully for King Jesus. All right? It will not be on the same level that Christians faced in Peter's time. It won't be on the same level that Christians are even now experiencing in places like China or North Korea or Eritrea. But if we are living faithfully for Christ, there will be some people who, guess what? They won't like us. They won't want to hang around with us. They won't want to hear what we have to say. And that is some small measure of suffering that we will engage in as Christians. Now, because I think this idea of suffering humbly for the sake of Jesus Christ is so foreign to us, I do want to go through First Peter a little bit just to see how much Peter emphasizes that suffering is just kind of the, the background noise of the Christian life, as it were. It's just what we go through every day. It's not something we should shy away from. And indeed, it's something that we should be very curious, concerned if we don't experience this idea of suffering starts again in 1 Peter 1.1 when we are called exiles, right? To be in exile is to some extent to experience suffering. It means you're kicked out of your home and you can't go back. That's the kind of suffering, right? He goes on in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be proved more precious than gold. So notice 1 verse 6. We have necessary trials so that our faith can be proven. So we must go through suffering of some way. Then turn over to 1 Peter 2 verse 12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is the verse we're in this morning, right? So that when they speak against you as evildoers... Notice the when there, when they speak against you as evildoers, right? Not if they happen to, but when they do. Christians will be spoken of, but even notice how we will be spoken of. We won't be spoken of just as crazy people who love God. We'll be spoken of as evildoers, right? Our actions will be positively misconstrued. Even if we're trying to love other people, even if we're trying to care for them, it's going to be turned back on us and they're going to say, no, you really hate us. You don't actually love us. You're evildoers, right? So we will be treated as evildoers. Go down to 2 verse 19. It says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering, while suffering unjustly. Okay? Peter's acknowledging we Christians are going to suffer unjustly. And 
when we get to those verses, we'll see that he encourages us to suffer in a humble way, right? Not lashing out in return. 1 Peter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So again, Peter is presuming that evil will be done against us, that reviling will be done against us. And he gives us these instructions because he wants to make sure we don't just repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but reviling will come. Evil will come. We have to expect that. Go to 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Okay? You should suffer for righteousness' sake. Again, this is a normal thing. Peter wants to make sure Christians are prepared, that we have the mentality that we will suffer for righteousness' sake. And we're going to keep doing righteousness, even though it means we suffer. Down to verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, again, notice the when. When you are slandered, not just if you are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 4.4. This is maybe the verse in 1 Peter that makes it clearest why why we're being reviled as Christians. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They malign you. And why do they malign us? Because we don't join them, right? Because they're trying to encourage us to go along with things that we don't think are God's will. And because we don't go along with them, what do they do? Well, they hate us. They malign us, right? And I think that goes back to the John 3 reality that we read about. It somehow exposes that their deeds are evil and they don't like that. And so they're going to hate us. Go down to 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised. Okay, how much clearer can you get? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then lastly, 5 verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the devil roars around and the brotherhood throughout the world is experiencing persecution even at the hands of the devil himself. What I hope all these references do to seeing how many times this is repeated throughout 1 Peter is it just makes you ask this question in your mind, like, am I suffering for Christ? Is there anything I'm doing with my life that is being displayed in the world in such a way that I could actually be reproached for it, right? If you're not taking any action in that way, if we're not stepping out at all in that way, we should really ask ourselves, how are we missing the Christian life itself, right? Peter seems to say over and over that suffering is not just something that may happen once in a while to Christians, Again, suffering is just what Christians expect to experience because we are faithful to King Jesus. And so let it be a difficult test of your faith to ask that question. Have I experienced hatred from anyone? Have I experienced suffering in any way because of the way that I'm living for Christ? And if the answer is no, then we probably need to reconsider whether or not we are living faithfully to Jesus Christ. 
And so, these are a couple big themes of 1 Peter. This theme of the new birth that makes us strangers and exiles. And this theme of suffering. So this theme of the good news, you could say, this gospel that is proclaimed about Jesus coming and dying and rising again. And then this theme of the fact that it will involve suffering on the part of the Christian community. And so with those two big themes in mind, let's go back to 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, and then again we're going to skip forward and then jump back one more time. So beloved I urge you as soldiers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is in reflecting on all that's come before in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2, verse 10, where Peter has celebrated the gospel. He celebrated the new birth. He celebrated the fact that Jesus has come. And as we saw, especially in 1.22 down to 2.10, the fact that Jesus Christ himself has generated this new community with this new identity. And because of that great work that God has done, we must abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But then notice Peter doesn't just stop there. Again, he doesn't just stop with the fact that we have this personal moral project, you could say. He goes on in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, this inner transformation that we're striving after, this abstention from the passions of the flesh, is not mainly about we ourselves somehow becoming privately holy people or privately good people. No, it is about living among the Gentiles in such a way so that when we experience this suffering, we may, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Day of visitation just means the day when Christ returns and he will judge the living and the dead to give reward and punishment as is due. So we are to live before the world. And then notice where Peter goes right after that. He has a series of instructions for people that are living in different areas of life. So verse 13 of 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he's saying how we as Christians are to relate to earthly governments and powers. From there he goes down to verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. And so he gives instructions for how Christians are to live in that slave-master relationship. Wives, be subject to your husbands. So he delves into the relationship of wives to husbands, and he's especially thinking of unbelieving husbands or Gentile husbands. How are wives supposed to relate to them? Verse 7 of chapter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, so husbands toward wives. And then lastly, verse 8. Finally, all of you. So now he's kind of summing up everyone in the Christian community. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And he goes on from there about how Christians, especially as a church, are to respond when we are persecuted, when we are suffering. 
In other words, what Peter is doing in his letter is he's going from this zone of celebrating the new birth, celebrating the work of Christ and all that it means for us, to going to this place of mission, how we as Christians are to live in the world, how our actions, whether between husband and wives or slaves and masters, before the government authorities, how our actions actually shine the light of Christ in the world so that people will see what Christians are really like And they will come to believe in Jesus and be saved. And so, with that in mind, let's again look more closely at verses 11 and 12 and see how they fit into this overall trajectory of what Peter is saying. So, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter is taking stock of this identity that he has already elucidated for us, of us being sojourners and exiles. And if we are sojourners and exiles, then that means that we ought to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, the fact that we belong to heaven and we don't belong to earth means that our actions should be actions that reflect heaven rather than reflecting earth, right? The passions of the flesh are passions of a former way of life. We have been delivered from the flesh, saved from the flesh, so that we can live in a spiritual way. We are not fleshly people any longer if we are strangers and exiles. Rather, we are spiritual people. And if that is our identity, if we are spiritual people, then how could we possibly live in the way of the flesh? How could we possibly live in the passions of the flesh? So the first reason that Peter gives us for abstaining from the passions of the flesh is the fact that we have been born again. The fact that we are no longer this earthly kind of people. The fact that we are sojourners and exiles. But notice that he gives us another reason here as well in verse 11. He says, the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. You see, the the conflict between flesh and spirit is not a neutral conflict. It's not like you can have a little bit of some and a little bit of the other and they both will get along just fine. No, the, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit is one of warfare. It's one of battle. And to the extent that one increases, the other one will decrease. But beloved, the only way we could possibly abstain from the passions of the flesh is to understand, to enjoy, to revel in that new birth that we have received. We cannot simply abstain from passions of the flesh like we can just tell ourselves all day, don't do anything wrong, don't do anything wrong, don't do anything wrong. If that's all we tell ourselves, then all we'll be focusing on all day long is the wrong things that we're not supposed to do, and we will fall prey to those very wrong things. What we must do if we want to wage war against these passions of the flesh is to be filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the wonder and glory of the new birth, to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and to meditate on what Christ has done for us. And how we do now have, through Jesus Christ, this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The life in the Spirit is so much better than the life in the flesh. 
And as long as you're convinced that life in the flesh is better than life in the spirit, that you're missing out on something by not living for the flesh, then you will live for the flesh. It's only as we come to enjoy and savor Jesus Christ, knowing him, knowing what he's done, that we will be able to put away these passions of the flesh and we will be able to fully live for God. But again, we must remember that this isn't a personal project. It doesn't end there. A Christian cannot be one who simply tries really hard to not sin, who simply tries really hard to know God in some private way. Again, look where Peter goes immediately after verse 11. He goes to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The most obvious thing about that verse is actually a command that Peter doesn't even give. And that is the fact that we are to be among the Gentiles. Again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Gentiles are people, simply people who do not know Jesus Christ. And in Peter's day, he could certainly take for granted that his readers were going to be among the Gentiles, right? In ancient times, you couldn't get anything done without interacting with other people. Unfortunately, in our modern day, we cannot take that for granted, right? We can get a lot of things done without ever interacting with other people or with interacting with other people in just the most rudimentary way, right? These days, you want to buy something, you don't even need to go to a store anymore, right? You can just order on Amazon. You want food, you don't even need a waiter. You can just go get fast food, right? Hardly need to talk to anybody. In fact, you can even, you know, pick it up somewhere. And so I think the first question for us, if we want to keep verse 12, is this question of, are you among the Gentiles enough? Are you among unbelievers enough that they can actually see your good works in the first place? Or are you an isolated Christian where you could be working all day to love God and to sing his praises, but nobody's ever going to know about it because you never see anybody else, right? I myself was challenged this week as I was thinking about my own life, and I'm like, okay, how much am I among unbelievers? Do I need to reform my own lifestyle in any way? And I was persuaded there would be a couple of easy ways for me to reform my life. So one example is, um, you know, when I go out to eat, usually I like to go someplace that, you know, is very quick. Um, I don't have to take a long time there. I can just kind of be in and out. You know, a place like Chipotle, I find it just be fantastic. And yet, I bet that I could go to Chipotle every single week for the rest of my life. And guess what? I probably would never know the name of a single worker there. They would probably never have a meaningful conversation with me. I probably wouldn't get to know anybody else in the store because the whole nature of Chipotle, the whole nature of fast food is people come in, they get things quickly, they go out. You don't actually get the opportunity to know anyone. And so one easy change that I could make in my life, and I encourage you to make in your life is find a restaurant where they can actually get to know you. If you like to go out to eat, just find a place where you can go regularly and get to know the name of a waiter, get to know the name of the owner, where, they, where you can actually become a person and be in relationship with others. Right? To be among the Gentiles doesn't require us to totally upend our entire life. It requires us to look at the fringes of our life, so to speak. Where are we being private? Where are we taking opportunities and just doing something without relationship where we could do it with relationship? 
And then take those opportunities to be among the Gentiles in such a way that they can see your good works. So that's the first thing that we see. But then in 2.12, we also see that we have to realize that even when we do this, even when we are among those who are unbelievers, if we are trying to do the right thing, we will suffer even when we do right. Again, 2.12 says that, so when they speak against you as evildoers. Now, beloved, it's so helpful to go into a relationship knowing that that could very well happen. If you don't go into a relationship thinking it could happen, then all of a sudden, someone starts speaking against you as an evildoer, and your immediate reaction is to think, oh no, what did I do wrong? What do I need to change? How did I fail? And yet, most often for Christians, as Peter's saying here, when others speak against us as evildoers, it's not because we failed. It's not because we did anything wrong. It's precisely because we were faithful. And again, Peter is kind of turning the whole concept on its head that when we think we're doing wrong when people do hate us, Peter would say we should actually think we're doing wrong when people don't hate us. (laughs) When no one speaking against us is an evildoer, right? We need to let our works shine so brightly that they encounter some kind of opposition, they make some kind of wave, right? If they don't make any kind of wave, if we're just vanilla in the world of, you know, all these different flavors of ice cream, then what good are we doing? How are we being faithful to King Jesus? Now, of course, we pray and we hope that they will not do that. We pray and we hope that they will respond in a positive way. But we don't bank our hopes on that. We don't measure our faithfulness on the basis of what they do. And certainly we don't go out and just seek out suffering, right? We don't go out and just like try and be a jerk just so they hate us, you know? Don't be a jerk. Peter says over and over, be gentle, be respectful. We're gentle and we're respectful. But again, expect that even when you're as gentle as can be, even when you're as respectful as can be, if you are representing Christ, you will sometimes be spoken of as an evildoer. And so ask yourself, has anyone spoken of me that way? If no one's ever spoken of you that way, I would say you probably need to make some more waves, right? Be a little more open about your faith in Jesus Christ. Find more opportunities to be in the midst of unbelievers. But 1 Peter 2.12 doesn't end there. And this is one of the most paradoxical paradoxical things about this verse to me. Notice it says, When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? How does that work? Right? The same people that speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they, same group, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, beloved, when you are living in the midst of the world in such a way that they're speaking of you as evildoers, don't think that's the end of the game. Don't think, oh, I've messed up, I've lost, nothing's ever going to happen. No, the very people who speak of you as evildoers in one moment may have another day very soon where they realize that they need to give glory to God because of your witness where their hearts are turned, where they themselves experience the new birth. Beloved, all of us, 
before we came to Jesus Christ, hated God and hated righteousness. I certainly remember growing up, even in a Christian home, I hated the idea of always doing the right thing. It seemed boring. It seemed like I was missing out on all the best things in life. And those Christians who always seemed to be able to do the right thing, I hated them most of all because they somehow made it look easy when I thought it was the most miserable thing in the world. And if those Christians had somehow judged their faithfulness, judged their success by my feelings about them or by my feelings at the time about Christianity in general, they would have thought they were utter failures. They would have thought they needed to totally change tactics, right? They would have thought, oh, I need to find a way to spice up this Christian message, right? Make it more fun, make it more exciting. But praise God they didn't do that. They just kept on living for Christ. They kept on doing good deeds. They kept on following him. And what happened is one day, God changed my heart. God made me see that he was actually better than all the pleasures of the world. And so I was able to repent of my former hatred of Christians, my former hatred of obedience to Jesus Christ. I was able to have my eyes opened and turn to God and say, God, I want what's really best in life. I want you. I want to be known by you, and I want to know you. And so as a result, me, myself, who hated God, who hated Christians, became one who was born again. And he can do the same thing for every last person on this earth. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to save the most wretched sinner. The blood of Christ is strong enough to cleanse from the deepest and darkest sin. And so no matter how much evil people are spewing about Christians, about our message, our beliefs, don't lose hope. Those people who hate us today, maybe those whom God turns their hearts tomorrow. The Apostle Paul himself was the most remarkable example of this, was he not? Killing Christians, going around all the Middle East trying to destroy the church, and yet God turns him into the most powerful witness, the most prominent writer of the New Testament. And if he can do that for the Apostle Paul, he can surely do it in our own day. So beloved, keep verse 11, make war against those passions of the flesh, But do that in such a way that the world will see it, that it will make waves in the world around you, and they will give glory to God on that day when Jesus Christ returns. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, I pray that you will help us to truly live as citizens of that new kingdom. Help us to not live for this world, for the passions of this flesh. Help us to live for the age to come. And Father, as we do that, I indeed pray that you will open the hearts of many around us to hear the gospel message that we proclaim, to see the gospel lifestyle that we exhibit, and to turn to you in faith. Father, we come to you now as a people with our prayers, with our intercessions and our burdens and our confession. God, would you hear us as we pray?